Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and we're discussing the premiere episode of His Dark Materials, Lyra's Jordan. Lyra's Jordan was written by the showrunner Jack Thorne. He also wrote and created the horror TV series The Fades. This episode was directed by Tom Hooper, who also directed The King's Speech and uh, won an Oscar for doing that. I recognize the name Tom Hooper, but I didn't like put it together with that. So quick summary. Well, as quick as we get. During a great flood, Lord Azriel brings his niece, baby Lyra, and her demon pantalimon to Jordan College in Oxford, invokes Scholastic Sanctuary, and entrusts the master of the college to take care of her. Twelve years later, Lyra and her friend, the kitchen boy Roger, race around the college and engage in kid shenanigans. Meanwhile, Lord Azrael is in the far north, taking photograms of dust. Uh, Lord Azrael visits the college to present his findings to the scholars there. While sneaking around, Lyra sees the master attempt to poison her uncle's wine and warns him. Azrael tells Lyra to hide and spy on the master while he shares his research on dust, a mysterious substance that is attracted to adults but not to children children and seems related to a mysterious city visible in the northern lights. Azrael asks the scholars for more money to continue his work, even though the all-powerful magisterium considers it heretical. In the town nearby, the community of Egyptian outcasts celebrates the coming of age of Tony Costa. His demon has settled into its permanent form. But during the after-party, Tony's little brother Billy goes missing, so they mount a search for Billy and many other missing Egyptian children. The master of the college and the librarian debate their failed attempted murder, the master arguing that it was necessary to protect the college from the magisterium. The master mentions that Lyra has a major part to play in the coming drama, and that he regrets the college cannot protect her any longer. The alethiometer says she must take a long journey and commit a great betrayal. Lord Azrael leaves the college to continue his research, and Lyra is mad that he doesn't take her with him on his adventure north. The Magisterium is alerted to Azrael's heresy, and Lord Boreal amps up their surveillance of him. Mrs. Coulter arrives at Jordan College and is introduced to Lyra over dinner. They hit it off, and Mrs. Coulter invites Lyra to come back to London with her. Lyra agrees, but only if her friend Roger can come with her. That night, Roger also goes missing. The next morning, the master meets with Lyra and gives her the alethiometer, a golden compass-looking device that tells the truth. Lyra realizes that Roger is gone and frantically looks for him. Mrs. Coulter convinces Lyra that going to London is the best way to find him. As Lyra and Mrs. Coulter head to London on an airship, the Egyptians are also heading that direction on their barges, having also decided that London is the best place to look for their missing children. So it was everyone's general 
feel for this first episode? I was pretty happy with it. I think pilots in general are pretty hard, um, especially when you're adapting a novel where there's often like a lot of world building that it's hard to get in. And and a lot of times like the pacing just feels kind of weird. But I thought they did a pretty good job. I feel pretty much the same. The pacing was sometimes a little weird. And, but overall, I really liked it. Yeah, I, I love the look of the show. Like, I hope they keep that was the main thing that like really impressed me about the show. You know, the plot was like, we're very familiar with it. And um, and so like what I was looking for was like, how different is this from the film? And, you know, how different is this from what I imagined before and all of that kind of stuff? And like the look of this is just great. The use of shadows, the costumes and all of that stuff, I think, is fabulous. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I hope that this is like, you know, he's setting the bar for like, this is how the rest of the show will look. Yeah, I completely agree. I it didn't necessarily like occur to me until you mentioned who the director was, but you're right that it has a very cinematic feel to it. Um, So I'm not surprised to find out that the director is actually like an Academy Award winning film director. Yeah, yeah. Those scenes where they're like running up and down the stairs, like holding onto that rope, you know through like castle like corridors and or like running across the green to the airships and stuff are really fabulous and you know have like all of the energy that I felt like the story should have when I I was imagining it. I do sometimes think the theatricalness of it worked against it. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Uh, Mostly in that opening bit where they decided to do like words like they sum up the world building. Hmm. I feel like that's usually a, a time saver in movies where you've got like two hours, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, got eight hours for this season. I feel like they could have just worked all that in. I don't know. I feel like it worked as a time saver. They they had a lot to cover in basically like 50 minutes. Yeah, I I guess I think if I was sitting down to watch a TV show and had it had to start with like a paragraph of information. <laughs> I wouldn't go in with confidence. Like, I wouldn't immediately give up, but I also wouldn't feel they know what they're doing. Okay, here's a question. Do you think that the episode, as it is, like, no changes, would work without that text? Yeah, because the second time I watched it, I didn't even read the text, and I forgot what it all said. Yeah, I I think that would... I think the episode has enough information for you to understand, like, that demons are a thing. If you've never heard anything about this story... I think you could get it. I think, yeah, I think it's a little bit of a rookie move to put that that information up front feels like a note from somebody higher up who's like, regulars won't understand this. Yeah. yeah. Explain to them. I don't know. I guess. No, I do agree. I think the part about the magisterium wasn't really necessary, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like just having a little note about demons wouldn't. I don't know. It didn't bother me. If they'd just given a little note about demons, I actually think that would have been way better. Like, not gone on to any of the world building and, like, even mentioning the witches and stuff, but just saying, like, you know, this happens in a different world where, you know, your soul is an animal companion. Yeah. Done. Yeah, I guess that's that's the main thing that I think uh, is kind of helpful, because if you're not on board immediately, it could be really confusing. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I think the rest of it was pretty unnecessary. All right, did we have a favorite part? I'm going to go last. Okay. okay. I'll go first. I loved the music uh, as composed by Lorne. Bl- I think I've written his last name incorrectly down in my notes because I have it saying Blaif. I think That's, it's Balf. I, I think it's Balf, yeah. yeah. Or Balfi, maybe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it so much. That that was where the the cinematicness of it really worked well for it. I think <laughs> there's that part where it cuts to Mrs. Coulter for the first time, and mm-hmm. it's like literally some Darth Vader type music. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's great, so good. I was way into that too. I, I really yeah, liked good. it. I also really loved the opening credits and Mrs. Coulter in general. Yeah, so the the theme song uh, from the opening credits, I think they kept repeating that theme throughout the episode a couple of times, I noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. So that, mm-hmm. that might be like a motif we get over and over, which I love, you know, the use of music. Like you said, that's yes. good. Yeah, and I love the uh, the way they worked in the book title objects. Um to the opening credits too like you see the golden compass then the subtle knife and then the amber spyglass do, do you yeah mm-hmm. go back yeah. and watch yeah it's cool i've watched it like like i saw your notes here and i watched it like three times and i'm like i don't i do not see a knife or a spyglass it's cool it's, it's a little subtle but it's there it it is subtle but yeah after i saw the note i was like huh and i went back and looked and i was like oh clever you can't Where? you can't see me fist pumping right now but i'm so excited because usually i do not notice those things so they're like um lyra is kind of like walking away from the camera at one point into the alethiometer which is like huge in the background and then as the camera pulls away from her more and more like the knife is like folded into her dress and then it pulls through the actual like lens of the spyglass I get like, I, okay. I know I know what scenes you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I just interpreted those images differently. I assume that's what you're talking about. Yeah, at least yeah. that's what I thought it was. That's how I interpreted it. That's how it looked to me too. Once I knew what to look for, I was like, "Oh, cool." I really thought those were just pieces of the alethiometer. Like the thing on her back was one of the dials or one mm-hmm. of the the arms, mm-hmm. and then I guess the round bit that she walks into was. Like, like the, cap. the face mm-hmm. of the alethiometer is it what I thought that was. But it's so amber. But I, it, it is so amber now that I, yeah, I just pulled it up again. It is very amber. Anyways, maybe I'm wrong. It's fine. I was uh, really into the master of the college and um, the librarian and, and their affection that they have for Lyra. They're, I don't know, like. Maybe I'm biased against British people. I don't think that British men have emotions. Um, I know they do, but I'm I'm just skeptical. But like, I don't know. You, you never see this like kind of nurturing, loving side of men with children. Like the way that men are portrayed as nurturing children is to be like sarcastic with them or hard on them. And you know what I mean? Like, Mm-hmm. give them give them a hard time for their own good and never be like affectionate or worry about them or be um upset at their inability to like keep up with the kid that is not something that is allowed for men to feel in in fiction i feel like because it's not an okay emotion for men to feel period um you're just supposed to be like stoic or sure of yourself And I saw a lot of like conflicted emotions on the master's face, the librarian's face. And especially with her uncle Asriel, there's that 
scene where he carries her off to bed. He starts to like untie her shoes. And then I feel like he has this moment of like, what am I doing? What am I letting myself feel for this girl? I have to shut this off and like pulls away from her. And that's the moment where she like stops pretending to be asleep and starts talking to him because she wants Mm -hmm. that connection. And like just all of that stuff is good that these guys genuinely care about her and want to protect her. But at the same time, know that they have to either keep their distance in Azriel's case to keep her safe or let her go because it's time to let her go in, in the master and librarian's case. It's a low bar that men have emotions in a story, but like, I'm glad to see that these men do. That is good. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm curious how this take fits in with your previous take that James McAvoy had too much emotion for being cast as Lord Asriel. Are you basically like walking that back? I'm just assuming now that we're like, this is the TV version of Asriel, which is a, a different story. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the story that we get here from Asriel, I feel like is that he is that he he's in trouble. He's on the run. And so he can't be around Lyra for her safety. He can't be with her. But the look on his face at any given time when he's around her is that he wants to be with her Mm -hmm. and that because he cares about her, he can't be. And that that is like creating a kind of really intense emotional friction in him. It's tearing him up. And that's super interesting to me that like a man is allowed to feel that and like a character like Asriel is being like put in that emotional position. Like maybe I'm misreading his performance or like their intentions, but I, I feel like that's what this episode was saying. No, I think you're completely right in your interpretation. And I do actually really like this read on Asriel's character compared to book Asriel. Like I like that he's more connected and conflicted with Lyra. I have opinions on that, but they're all spoilers. So I guess I can talk about them in our spoiler section. (laughs) Well, only in the main section, we only do vague gestures at spoilers, but uh, yeah, don't. Well, like, like they have things to do with the ending of the series. Okay. Mm-hmm. I guess that means I'm getting spoiled then. I, I won't go too far into it. Okay. <laughs> um, so my favorite part, and now I feel like I shouldn't have gone last since what you had to say, Alan, was so like meaningful. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and what I have to say is like kind of trivial. Um, whenever I'm watching an adaptation like this, I feel like the things that I enjoy most are, are often like things that are really different from the book and like obvious intentional choices. And I just love that scene of Lyra screaming at the alethiometer, trying to get it to tell her where Roger is. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me where I can find Roger. The airship is about to leave. If we're going, we have to go now. Tell me if the goblins have Roger. I love it because it's like, it's such an obvious choice in retrospect that like, given this piece of technology that she doesn't understand how it works, like she would just try that as a first go. And it like works so beautifully on the screen. But yeah, it's like completely uh, invented new, uh, not taken from the book at all. So I I just appreciated that. I thought it was really cute. Oh, no, it's really smart. It's like she's basically like holding a Star Trek communicator Mm -hmm. and like (laughs) she's like, give me the truth. What's going on? 
it it really gets like across how desperate she is in that moment yeah and, uh, it got a laugh from me i watched the episode a couple times and i laughed both times and uh, i watched it with christina and she laughed at that part too it's it, it breaks the tension really nicely but it like also you're right there with her like you need a laugh at that point because you're just like go I feel like having Lyra fail so spectacularly the first time she tries to use the alethiometer um, will make her getting more successful and like gaining skill with it later on pay off more. Yeah. Okay, wait. Backtrack. Back to the opening credits that were gorgeous. I did like how you sort of slowly watched the, the dust create the alethiometer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was so good. Yeah, I, I really like the way that... Um, in the opening credits too, that I love the opening credits. Like the whole thing is really fabulous. It's the exact mm-hmm. kind of credits that I love in a show. And they have like this thing as you keep pulling out more and more and more, the like mm-hmm. the universes become waves that become strings. And then the strings become a string that cuts the logo in half. And I was like, Oh, perfect. Good. Yeah. So like the yes, string theory, a- the worlds and all this stuff, like pulling together is cool. Yeah. They were, Pretty much perfect. Did we did we have like least favorite things that we wanted to talk about or problematic things, I guess? So in general, I thought that the demons looked pretty good as far as like CGI goes. Mm-hmm. But I was so annoyed every time there was a crowd scene, I felt like there just weren't enough of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like I I understand from a tr- production standpoint why they might have done that just because, you know, it's a lot of effort and it, you know, takes time and money to do all of that. But like you can't have a crowd scene of a hundred dudes and and only have like two visible demons. That's just like they can't all have like tiny little moths or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. I thought that with the scholars and with the students in the halls, I kept thinking that too. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It kept coming to mind. You basically, it's like only main characters get demons, which right. is, I don't know. In order to explain it away in my head, I basically just have to say like, you know, selective goggles. I'm just going to pretend that all of the other demons are there. Everyone's got a snake in their pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing with, with like demons not being there when they should, when Lyra sneaks out of the classroom, there's definitely a minute where she like holds open the window but doesn't go through. And I can very much tell that the actress is waiting for the imaginary demon to go through, but they just decided not to put him in. Mm, right. <laughs> oh my God, I definitely did not notice that. I'm gonna have to go back and see it. It's just like this brief thing and I'm like, and she's kind of even looking down and I'm like, yep. They were going to put a pan there, and then they decided not to. <laughs> I also noticed that um, they basically only give pan, I think, two different forms, like the little ermine and then the like bigger brown thingy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which, again, is like probably a cost-cutting measure. Like, it's easier to animate fewer I think forms. he's a bird when she's running towards Lord Oh, Ezra. you're right. Okay. Yeah, but... Um, it's definitely way less show offy than the book version where Pan is just, you know, like constantly flitting through different things. It seems like they, they, for, you know, production reasons probably had him pick his, a few favorites that he just goes back and forth between. 
Mm-hmm. I hope we get to see him as his like mangy wildcat form at some point because that's my favorite. Yeah, he's. I I liked when he was a bird. That really gives that scene like a lot of energy when the bird flies mm-hmm. out and then it cuts to the kids, you know, racing across the lawn. Those scenes are so good. And I really liked when they show the Egyptians from a, a distance and there's all the birds flying overhead for them because um, that feels like exactly correct. But since the, you know, well, I don't know, like maybe this society doesn't work the way the book does, but, you know, like. Because your what your demon is is so important, like you can't have everybody walking around with like a trained dog because that like would break the world on a certain level. So like I get it why everybody doesn't have a raven on their shoulder or something like that. Because either way, whether that's CG or like you got trained ravens, that's expensive. Yeah. Oh my god, it just occurred to me that because we're watching the advanced review copy, it's possible that more demons will be in the broadcast version. That's I don't tr- think so. At that's this point. true, but like I doubt it. Okay. okay. <laughs> also, they've already shown this to people okay. um, at the world premiere. Oh, okay. So this is like pretty final. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if it was in an unfinal state, there would be like stand-ins. Oh. Yeah, you know, something. they would they would there would be like rough special effects or something because they, they don't have time to finish brand new special effects at this point. I, I don't know. Like, I keep thinking about the Egyptians in terms of problematics. There's um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with Egyptians uh, that isn't problematic and is cool. Um, the fact that I'm not sure I haven't actually looked up every last actor, but I don't think any people are Roma. I don't think there's any Roma writers. And so that's a problem. I do think that that's, well, like, not necessarily the fault of the TV show. They're just going with what the book had. Mm -hmm. You know, like, they they could have completely changed it, but then you'd be alienating book readers. And they were in a bad spot there, I think. Well, I think you could hire Roma actors to play these characters, but they made a different choice, which is interesting. But, you know. Well, I mean, and again, we kind of talked about this in the book discussion, but like they're they're Roma analogs, but not like real Mm -hmm. Roma, you know, I don't know. Or you could at least interpret it that way. I do like that they were very uh, multicultural, although not. Well, I guess they were just white and black people. There was nobody else that I saw anyways. Yeah. Maybe I'm incorrect. Yeah. I don't. uh, Yeah. We don't see like any. um you know, Indian people or, um, you know, Middle Eastern or Persian or anything like that. Yeah. Just, yeah, it looked like um, black folks and white folks, which is good. Like, it's all cool. Like, and, and it's, you know, a class thing um, and they mixed in race there, but race is not like contained to the Egyptians, which would have been problematic. It's, you mm-hmm. know, it exists on multiple class levels, which is great. So I just, you know, I just wanted to draw attention to the fact that there's no Roma people on staff in any, I'm pretty sure that that's true. Right. They did have um, Matt, Matt Fraser as uh, Raymond Van Garrett, and that is an actor with Focomelia, I think is how you pronounce that. Oh, I don't know what this is. You see him sort of just in the background in a scene, oh, but oh, he... Oh, yeah, okay. I know who you're talking about now. Yeah, he's got the, he's got... um like short arms kind of yeah 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 i did notice him Uh, yeah and i liked that that's cool um so yeah i'm glad that they had some other types of diversity within the cast not just race but Mm -hmm. uh does that make sense able diversity i don't i don't 
Uh, people with yeah. disabilities. Yes. Yeah, that was. I did notice that guy. I didn't know the name for it though. So yeah, that's cool. My least favorite thing was the opening scene, which is fine in and of itself. This is the scene where Azriel is dropping Lyra off at the college for the first yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, it's a fine scene. They did a fine job with that, but I dislike it because the book opens with Lyra and Pan, and every so slight spoiler, the series ends with Lyra and Pan. You know, the the first word of the Golden Compass is Lyra, and the very last word of the Amber Spyglass is Lyra. And I wanted, I like that. I like that the story is Lyra's story, and I feel like giving that opening scene to Azriel makes it a little less. Interesting. Mm. I actually thought that was a really good choice because I think it just, it's simpler, right, to present things in a chronological order. So we kind of find out about um, how Lyra came to the college midway through the book. And, and you know, mm-hmm. a lot of it is given through her recollections, which is kind of hard to do in a visual medium um, without flashbacks, which are typically, you know, frowned upon um, as weak storytelling. So I, I thought it kind of worked to to do some all of that like world building stuff before the credits as the cold open and then like the show proper starts um, with Lyra at the college. I don't necessarily disagree with any of that. Like like I said, it's actually a fine scene. I just hate that it takes us away from it being Lyra's story. Mm-hmm. And I still think we're going to have some flashbacks based on the trailers. We're going to have like some Mrs. Coulter flashbacks and that sort of thing. Yeah. And he also didn't take his shirt off, which I was like, <laughs> why? Why not? I'm no, sorry. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to make you cough laugh. No, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying. And that's it's a good point that it's kind of taking the spotlight off of Lyra's primacy in the show. And I'm trying to think about like how much time we spend with her. We get the, you know, we've already talked about the Egyptians a little bit and and their story seems to be like completely contained unto themselves. Like Lyra, Lyra like interacts with the Egyptian children a little bit, but that's it. Does she, she does, right? I'm not Remind- No, she, she just, she talks to Roger about knowing who Billy Costa is. Okay. That's they didn't it. talk to them. No. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking of the video game. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, <laughs> the video game sad. that no one else has ever played except you. Yeah, that's sad. You should cut that out. But um, <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah, so that any of them, uh, any amount of time that we're spending with Egyptians doesn't really intersect with her story until it like crashes into Roger. Um, mm-hmm. Wait, you know, that situation. Okay, so before we move on. How does the first Harry Potter movie start? Does it start with Baby Harry? It starts with Privet Drive, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I feel like yeah. there's, I mean, I know the book, The Golden Compass came before the book Harry Potter, but I feel like this TV show version is kind of like more echoing that narrative structure. I think they're trying to, I actually, I'm surprised that, you didn't like the scene, but I like the reason you don't like it, because I think what they're trying to do actually is like this is for dedicated book fans, because I this information comes from one of the novels written after the trilogy. Yeah, that there's a flood, you mean? Yeah. And like how she comes with Azrael, like the specifics of this. I haven't read that book, but that's my understanding of it. So I, I have some thoughts on that in the spoiler section. Okay. Okay. So I feel like this is like a, 
you know, like you're, <laughs> it's like if you were sitting next to me at a Marvel movie and I would be like, oh, issue 197, I see. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it would be like that kind of a thing. No, I, I hear what you're saying. And like I said, the scene is well done. And I, in, in theory, I like it. It just, because it didn't start with Lyra and Pan, yeah. who are the important people in this story or the important person. <laughs> right. The, it, it, it just, honestly, I didn't even really notice it until we get to the scene where she's hiding in the cupboard. And then I was like, oh, right, we're supposed to start here. You know, so so I think the writing and everything was fine with it. But then when I got to it, I was like, right, we didn't open with that scene with with Lyra and Pan, which means if we close with that same scene with Lyra and Pan, it's not going to have that same symmetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of the cupboard, were you upset that it wasn't a wardrobe? I don't know if upset is the word, but I noticed I was like, that is not a wardrobe. Philip Pullman was on set being like, excuse me, we have to stick it to C.S. Lewis. Yeah. What are you doing here? Put a fucking wardrobe in this room. But um, I guess I guess he got overruled. I figured. Yeah, exactly. I figured that Jack Thorne does not care about that bone picking that that yeah. Philip Pullman was interested in. So I actually I didn't I kind of didn't like how that whole thing pays off even because like Asriel tells her like watch for this and she does and you know like we're watching the whole scene through her perspective which is good and strong but then that never comes back to anything he never like interviews her to be like so what happened with this guy and what did you think about this like none of that happens instead they have that scene that i really love that's all about like how tangled up their emotions are with each other which is like give me that scene before a callback but at the same time, I was like, the, what's the point of it? Why do this scene if you're not going to do it? So, Well, I did love the fact that he legitimately forgot that she was there. Yeah. That was like... <laughs> I like that too. Another one of those moments, um, like a subtle change that made me laugh really hard. I liked that because that feels like real to me. <laughs> Dad <laughs> he moment? Was like, well, I, like, I came here to get my my funding and I've been up all night and traveling and I pulled it off and I did the thing. Oh shit. Right. She's asleep in the thing, the treasure chest that I put her inside of or whatever. I did also like the next day when she's talking to Roger about, and she's like, yeah, I spent the night in a cupboard and he's just like (laughs) the whole night. And she's like most of it. And like no other explanation. Just (laughs) that's it. And Roger just goes with it. And he's like, okay, well, Lyra's being Lyra. I guess that moment is one of the few places where we really get to see the kind of like storyteller Lyra come through, which is like much less uh, strongly presented in this TV show version than in the book version. Right. In the book version, she's a storyteller and a liar and, you know, always telling these like incredible, completely unbelievable tales. And you never know, like, if she's actually telling the truth or not. And so I guess you kind of see her imagination coming through when she's doing the little like bird flappy shadow thing and when she's mm. telling that story to Roger. But that is like one of the things that I noticed um, and kind of like felt the absence of a little bit because it seems like a really critical part of her character. And like maybe it'll come through more um, later on when she's, you know. Yeah, they didn't they didn't have her tell a single lie in this episode. Yeah. And. I think that that is a very interesting choice, considering 
things that they really need to start setting up. And I don't, I don't just mean things that happen in this book, but or what in in yeah, well, in this book season season, I guess, yeah. But but those those also like I get the feeling I could be very wrong about this, um, but I get the feeling that they're going to have her sort of learn to lie from Mrs. Coulter. Mm. Mm. Just from like the trailers that we've seen about Mrs. Coulter saying like I can teach you how to do all these things, mm-hmm. and because they very specifically did not show her telling a single lie, I guess they do have her tricking the librarian and like locking him in the room. That's like kind of a lie. <laughs> Seems easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not like one of her stories. Yeah, it's not a tall tale. Yeah, which is what. Which is sort of what she's known for. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she has to be Lyra Silvertongue by the end of this. Yeah. Right. No, that's a good point. I hadn't really uh, thought about that. I feel like there's a lot of, like, plot ticking along in this episode and, and not a ton of character stuff, especially kind of from Lyra. And like mm-hmm. you were mentioning that the focus was off of her a little bit. And I mentioned that how much I loved the emotion that we get from the men, but I do feel like there's more focus on these male characters around her in character terms, not necessarily plot time, than there was on her. Yeah, she's a little bit blank, right? Mm-hmm. She's a wild kid, but not it's not much there. The other thing that I felt was missing a little bit was uh, Pan's personality, yeah. um, which I think is, you know, again, one of those things that it's much easier to do in a book than in a TV show where you're relying on CGI. Um, You know, and I think it was probably a good decision to not focus as much on the CGI demons, but, like, at some point, that's gonna have to change, I think. I, again, I hope for that in the next episode, because, okay, so here's my take on it, I guess. In this episode, I feel like they're setting up the Shire, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The 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 good place where Lyra comes from and her and why she likes it there and all the people there, you know what I mean? Yeah. And now and then at the end she leaves. Mm-hmm. And so in the next episode, if they don't do too much with you know the other sort of groups of people going on, will be mostly just her and Mrs. Coulter. Mm-hmm. And so we should get some time there for her for her to really interact with Pan mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm hoping for, because I really did not enjoy how little Pan there was in this one. Yeah. And coupled with how they didn't, um, during that, that scene with, with the Egyptians where they're celebrating, what's his face, Tony, mm-hmm. <laughs> they put a, they sort of put an emphasis on calling the demons companions. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is really lowering the stakes about what's going to be going on. So I think they got to make a sharp turn. To up in those states. What do you mean? Well, because they're not companions. They're not friends. They're not protectors. They're you. They're a part of you. Yeah, they didn't use the word soul at all. They said yeah. in, in the introduction, it said the bond between a human and their demon is sacred. And so, like, I feel like that word, it was a very carefully chosen word and, and like, conveys that, you know, kind of religious, but not in the sense of the magisterium religion, you know, like, like actual, yeah. like sacredness, um, mm-hmm. you know, that has to do with being a split part of your soul. And that's one of the reasons why I actually really liked that first, at least the first part of the, the word introduction, right? Because without that word sacred, I think you do kind of just see them as like a fun, quirky animal companion. 
And so I feel like that was like really necessary storytelling. But yeah, it didn't come through in the episode itself. Again, I don't think this is necessarily bad choices. I just think they are choices that they have made. And I, I do think that in the next episode, they're, or in the next two episodes, maybe they're going to have to... Because we know we get that scene from the trailers where the monkey uh, like jumps on Pan and we see Lyra say, you know, you're hurting us. Mm-hmm. So we know that they do have some bits where, where we see how connected they are. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to care about... You know what's actually going on they're they're gonna have to show that and by we obviously i mean the people who have not read the book yeah <laughs> well yeah and they have to build it for their world like this is part of it you can't just like you know go oh well these are based on books so everybody will know the information like yeah. that's not telling a story you have to yeah. tell your story yeah well i you know speaking of all that we we talked about this a little bit of uh like just talking about the idea of like when you're watching an adaptation and like how that can feel, which we've kind of been talking about, but like, I, I feel like when I watched and like, everything's an adaptation now, it feels like, you know, Mm -hmm. like people are not getting the money to make their own original things these days. So it feels like if you, you know, like when usually when you watch like, or read or whatever, you know, engage with a regular story, the main thing that you're looking for is like to be swallowed into the story where you, where you're not aware of like the screen or the page or whatever anymore. And you're just in there with the characters feeling it. And you know, you're there with, them. and anything that throws you out of that state is like a bad thing. And so I think when you watch an adaptation of something that you're really familiar with and it deviates in any way, you get that thrown out feeling. And then mm-hmm. you're like, this is bad. <laughs> and, uh, and then like, I feel like that is the, common reaction from most people and they don't always reflect on like the thing that you're saying that the creators are making choices and maybe they're doing this like you said they're setting up the shire and so there's going to be a darkening of her soul maybe from from another character she's going to learn how to lie and maybe she you know what does that mean in this story in this version it's going to mean something different than it does in the book version and i think for a lot of book fans, they might just see what's going on here and go like, this is different and therefore bad because I can't be swallowed into the story because all I can think about is how different it is. And like that, mm-hmm. hopefully by listening to shows like this, you can be like, oh, maybe they are doing a thing. Like it's not lit- it's not that they accidentally deviated or didn't know that they were supposed to do X, Y, Z. It's that they chose not to do that for some reason that we don't know yet because we haven't seen it all. Yeah. And maybe it'll turn out good and maybe it'll turn out like like the movie where there's no fucking stakes at all and it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Hopefully not. You know, oh, yeah, hopefully not because I really blah, I liked this episode and I would like to continue on liking them. <laughs> Speaking of the Egyptians, I don't know how I felt about that that celebration scene. I liked the idea of giving the Egyptians more culture and introducing like people who really do honor their 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 demons and that that connection although again they call them a companion and a protector and not you know your your soul but whatever that's fine um i i don't know I, it just felt like i liked the idea of the scene just watching it i was like i don't think this works like if maybe the writing or the acting or something and i was like i don't know how i feel about this it not as an adaptation choice just as a a scene in and of itself yeah, the kid that it was actually happening to seemed to not be into it. 
which I took as like some kind of teenage embarrassment. Don't I don't want to be in public angst or I don't want to do my bar mitzvah right now kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> which I mean is a choice like like that's the energy that I took from it. Maybe that's what I was feeling because I just kind of wanted to skip it because I just felt uncomfortable watching it. So maybe <laughs> I was feeling his uncomfortableness. I like that it underlines right away that there's like a passage into adulthood with the settling of your demon. Yeah. Yeah. That's clearly what it's like functionally doing within the story, right? Like it's it's yeah. introducing mm-hmm. the concept of your demon settling when you you know, are done with puberty and then also introducing the Egyptians as a people. So I can see why they came up with the scene. And I think it mm-hmm. it successfully does those two things. But you're right. There's something that was just like felt a little bit hokey in the way that it was executed. Hokey is a good way. Yeah. Hokey is what I was feeling also. Yes. That was a good word for it. What I do like about that is that that basically they feel positive about this, that it's a good thing that your animal has settled. Absolutely. I could not nail down like one specific thing in that scene that I felt was wrong or bad or anything. I just the whole thing as it was put together made me be like, oh, I was. No. Yeah, I was getting serious. Ava DuVernay movie, uh, Wrinkle of Time, Wrinkle in Time vibes from Billy Costa. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can see that. And that kind of threw me out and also, yeah, was was not into him, but... Um, he was cute. Yeah, like, too cute. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to feel bad for him, I guess. He got kidnapped. And they, they gave him Ratter, so once again, they made the same choice the movie did about combining Billy and, and Tony Mecker, 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 whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although I don't feel that Makasta's demon would ever name a demon Ratter. Like, right. she just wouldn't. So I hate that they've given his demon that name. But sure, whatever. Maybe it's his version of Pan. And there's like a really Ratteriaros or something. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> That's a terrible Band-Aid. <laughs> uh, but it's better than no Band-Aid at all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I do also really love, the, the, like, the lady playing Malcosta is fabulous. She's great. No, it's, yeah, they, it's really good. Malcosta, who got a name in this. Yeah. I forget what it is. They called her by her first name. Oh, you're right. They, yeah, she did. It was like Margaret or something. I, mm-hmm. Or something like that. I don't think it was Margaret. Maybe it was. Uh, I should have written it that down. Yeah, I just. I liked her. She did, she did a good job. No, I thought she thing. was oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I like that they went in, like, a. A steep other direction than Mrs. Weasley. Because <laughs> right. in the book, they're basically the same character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is hilarious considering that a the, this book did come out before Philosopher's Stone. But like they're also like it's just strange how many similarities they have considering just that they were published so close together and like within that same time period. So I guess publishers were just looking for these things. Mm-hmm. What else? Well, I guess we're here with the Egyptians. Like, what else? So, what do we think of John Fa? Oh, I love. He was great. Mm-hmm. I really liked how how serious he was. I wasn't sure about the casting from the trailer and like just the images that we saw, but seeing him on screen doing the acting thing, great, wonderful, loved him. Mm-hmm. Not at yeah. all how I pictured him from the book, but I still really liked it. <laughs> right. No, he looks real sharp. Uh, yeah, I like how he is kind of detached from the community on a certain level mm-hmm. uh, and how there's like some resentment and friction there that feels like an authentic leadership kind of like a consequence of things, right? Mm-hmm. That 
if you're going to be the leader, then you're going to have to like piss people off sometimes to do the right thing. And he like he just has the right energy for that. I thought it was really good. Um, I I kind of feel like they've taken John Fa and Farter Quorum and like mixed them up. How mm. so? You know, like taking those two characters, put them in a blender, hit blend, and then but still taking out two characters at the end. Just poured them into two different glasses. Yeah. I was looking for Fodder Quorum's demon. I've I know, never, me too. We didn't yeah, get never, to see the autumn cat. Yeah. I was like, what does this look like? And I yeah, I, I wanted it so bad. His beard looks like it's autumn. So. Yeah. Because like Fodder Quorum looks like how I pictured John Fa. Like exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like just looks wise, I would have cast that actor as John Fa. Yeah. And I actually think the actor that they cast as John Fa looks a lot like how I pictured Farter Quorum. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to get them mixed up 100%. <laughs> I think my Fodder Quorum was closer to the librarian. He's like really old. Maybe. I don't know. You, you see him in one of the other books as a younger dude. And I don't think he is actually that old. He's just, you know, because of the disease that he had, he's, um, he's disabled. Mm. Do we want to talk about Mrs. Coulter? I loved her so much. I I actually really enjoy the choices that they are making with her. Like how they got rid of her being the person taking the kids. Yeah. I I like that because if you haven't read the books, you're probably like I I feel like you could buy into her not being evil. Well, we can actually just talk yeah. about this. Like to what extent do you think they're foreshadowing Mrs. Coulter's turn in the show? Like I think they do a pretty good job of of um of just giving her like a a slight uneasy feeling and you can like see that she's clearly manipulating Lyra to get her to do what she wants. But would we be able to see that if if we hadn't read the book or would it just read like an adult talking to a child, you know, and trying to like engage her? Maybe. You know, I I don't know cuz sometimes adults do that, you know, they just you know, they they just want to engage the kid that they're talking to so they won't necessarily Necessarily, it's not manipulative, but it's a different way than they would talk to a fellow adult. I think, okay, I, I think- hear me out. I feel like the way that Miss Coulter is clearly coming across as like caring about Lyra and not giving a shit about Roger, right? Is, <laughs> is like ominous and, and a big clue because if she, she's either lying about one of those things, right? Like either she cares about Lyra. And then would also like care about Roger or, you know, she's faking Mm -hmm. on one level. We did also talk about her Darth Vader thing. Oh, that's true. Okay. (laughs) I didn't write the theme. I mean, that I'm just describing what it is. So maybe that's that's the the other, um, what do you call it? The context clues. Yeah. Again, like, I don't know that if you hadn't read the book, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on that she doesn't care about Roger because she's lying to Lyra about caring about Roger. She does say like he can definitely come along with us and it's all cool. And like if you're just looking at this like mechanically like a like a writing craft thing, like basically what happens, it what it appears is happening here is that the master of the college tells the librarian Lyra has got to leave and then Mrs. Coulter comes in and the master says, Lyra, here is Mrs. Coulter. You two will get along famously. And it seems like he's brought her in 
mm-hmm. to take Lyra, you know, wherever it is that she needs to go. And so this is like the person who cares about her has handed her off to her new ward. And that person is very interested in her. And she says, you know, like, I need to bring my friend. And she's like, cool. It's no problem. So, and then like, it's a complete coincidence that that friend gets kidnapped just hours yeah. later. Well, I mean, like, it's like Caitlin said, there's, you know, she's not involved in kidnapping the other kid. There's really nothing to link those things together other than, like, the menace of the gobblers has, like, intruded in on, you know, mm-hmm. an orphan child who they didn't know that, you know, an important person might be involved with that kid. They just grabbed a vulnerable orphan, you know. So I don't know, like from a writing craft, I think if if somebody gave you the job of like, write this in a way where Mrs. Coulter could plausibly be a not villain to to people who have not read the book, I think they did as good a job as you could possibly do. Yeah. Okay. While still making her seem kind of. Yeah. Well, still. Yeah, exactly. You can't have the turn where it can't be like rainbows and sunshine. And then like there's a turn. And, it, yeah. and the fangs come out and then you're like, yeah, this is cheap. Mm-hmm. I guess. And you see like um, there's that scene at the very end where you see the monkey mm-hmm. see her fiddle with the alethiometer. And then you see Pan look at the monkey and be kind of worried. Yeah, that's and, really good. And that's like, yeah, it's like very good subtext. And also like... Um, I think that's one of the final images, right? It's like at the very end. So that's kind of what you leave on that like feeling of unease. I also really liked that because I feel like you could tell that the monkey saw it and then it cut right to Mrs. Coulter's face and you could tell that she knew it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it communicates that demon human connection, right? That like Mrs. Coulter didn't see it herself, but the demon saw it and then she like felt it through the mystical link or whatever. And that's actually like the right way to use the demons where you're communicating the interiority of the characters like just through it's like we're watching a silent movie. You don't need anybody to say anything to understand exactly what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems great. Yeah, that last bit in the airship I felt was the bit where we really the only bit where we really see like Lyra and Pan being the way I always pictured them because mm-hmm. like then he looks out the window and then you see like the realization on Lyra's face and she looks out the window to see, you know, because yeah. she could already tell what he was looking at. Wait, what mm-hmm. was he looking at? I don't remember. The Egyptian sleeve. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I even wrote that in the summary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Well, I mean, they did it there. So hopefully we just get more of that stuff. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff you want. It's like if you're going to have all of these, like you said, if you're going to have all these characters in close quarters together for a long time you're going to be able to do exactly that kind of stuff mm-hmm. how do you feel about the show's choice to give more insight into what's going on behind the scenes at the magisterium uh than we ever get in the book that makes total sense to me just it's great i'm super interested in the magisterium and like mm-hmm. all of the iconography and stuff is so crunchy to me like i was like ooh, ooh, ooh. The whole time. Yeah, when you see that that scene in the big room with uh, Boreal and and Father, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was it was really Father good. It Hitler? was was that his name? No. <laughs> sure. It, it's. <laughs> I actually know his name. It's just it's just out of my head as all names eventually leave. He must. That was a great scene. The, the set was beautiful, and you you mean the CGI? 
Yeah, yeah, I think they did a really good job no, with that. Did. Like how they swung around and showed the whole room because they could have just stayed on mm. them with like that wall behind them. Mm. And it wouldn't really have changed the scene. So I like that we saw how big that room was and then got like a, a feel for how big the magisterium mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that that room is a giant circle that's like focused on a central platform to me that you know like if you think of a church it's like kind of a stage in front of an audience kind of a Mm -hmm. setup and and to have that big circle and then also like the symbol of the magisterium here is like a Mm -hmm. circle with a cross inside of it to me that's like speaking to kind of like a global you know influence there's like there would be somebody down there who is like controlling everyone around them you know with their speech or whatever and the same thing in the symbol, which is like a globus uh, crucigur, which is like if you've ever seen like in Catholicism, they have like a globe with a cross on top of it. Um, that's what a globus crucigur is. Or, or sometimes you see pictures of kings holding them, you know, Christian kings and stuff. And so like that symbol of like the cross inside of the circle is like perfect. It's like we rule the world. <laughs> Christ for everyone. Oh, you don't like that? Come over here to the Inquisition. We have some lovely rooms for you to work <laughs> that out in. Um, what do you think about the scene between the master and the librarian where they're talking about avoiding murder? And I thought the bit that stuck out. Mm? I thought it made more sense than the book version of that scene. I actually appreciated it. I, there was like, I felt like there was less, uh, less subtext and more text. <laughs> yeah. They did add in a line, like the master says something about uh, like being scared for Lyra and then and scared of her. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I didn't know what he meant by that, but it, it is interesting. I also thought they made it more obvious that the master was actually using the alethiometer himself. And that's how he knew all this information about Lyra. I feel like maybe mm. I'm just dumb and it was obvious to everyone else reading the book, but for me reading the book, that wasn't super clear. I don't even know if I felt that way at the end of the series of the book. Like, I don't, I don't know that that is a true thing in the books. Maybe yeah. it is. I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't, it's not that you had, did not pick up on something obvious. I did not assume that he got that information from the elite. I think that's what the TV show is trying to say, though, because. Oh, no, it yeah. definitely does. Yes. OK, so we are on the same page with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes way more sense to me that that that's how he would have that knowledge and believe it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does work better. But I I never thought that while reading the books yeah i i love that scene that's one of the scenes where like i talked about before my favorite part so like the concern that the librarian has for her like versus Mm -hmm. what you get in the book where everybody seems a little bit annoyed by her or put off or like oh i got a baby yeah she's just like a burden mostly you don't get the feeling that anyone is really emotionally attached to her in the book at all really the librarian actively dislikes her in the book and like in that scene he's like the fate of the world rests on her like we're <laughs> fucked like, <laughs> and so like what we get here was much more heartwarming and um i really think you're right about this shire thing like that totally makes sense to me that we just have like all these people who care about her instead mm-hmm. of her moving from a situation that's not great and in, in in the book when she meets meets mrs coulter to a situation 
where she's like, oh, wow, this is somebody who's interested in me for like the first time ever for my own sake, it seems like, and gives me like nice things and, you know, all of this stuff. So it's obvious why she goes with Mrs. Coulter in the book. But in this situation, I feel like it was less obvious, although she's like very hesitant to go with Mrs. Coulter uh, overall, like compared to Asriel, where she's like, she seems willing to leave Roger behind for Asriel. But Mm -hmm. um, for Mrs. Coulter, she's kind of finding excuses to, you know, yeah, sure, I'll come. But she's not like into it. Right. Yeah. I do also. I I also thought it was interesting that Lyra did not bring any luggage with her. Yeah, she just she brought Pan. That's it. Yeah, she has all those mementos in her room. And I was wondering about that. Like, is that room just going to stay? I feel like the way that the master treats her that room is going to be like, don't touch this room. Yeah, for sure. Like, maybe she'll come back uh, at somehow. Who knows? That would be sweet if it's exactly the same. It'd be like, we didn't even make your bed. She'd be like, what the? <laughs> Why? I did want to go back to that scene that you hated um, and that you just said was terrible and the worst when they were swimming. Oh, the opening? Yeah. I mean, Caitlin just hated it from top to bottom. Um, I didn't hate it? I know. Okay. I, I just you. didn't like the choice in narrative structure. No, I think I think that's a good call. I, that the opening, so I haven't read the novel, the the prequel novel that like informs all of that mm-hmm. situation. So like to me that entire scene was like religious stuff. I was like, "Oh, there's a flood. There's a flood in the Bible. I've connected these dots." And and then uh a little baby getting delivered. Um, that's like Noah and Moses. And with the opening thing, we get this whole thing about like prophecy and, you know, and you're like faded and all of this kind of stuff. And so like Noah and Moses are both faded characters in the Bible. And so I just felt like all of that was in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause like Moses is, you know, if you've ever seen any adaptation of the 10 commandments, I feel like Moses is pretty well known Amongst people who, you know, have nothing to do with the Bible. It's like I have enjoyed the Prince of Egypt. It's a good the movie. Prince of Egypt. Yeah, exactly. Prince of Egypt. So that's like the story of Exodus. They, right. The slaves come out of Egypt and they part the Red Sea and then they get the Ten Commandments um, from on top of the mountain. And so like right there, you get a character who is like a savior character who frees people who are imprisoned. And I feel like that is directly being linked to Lyra. In her like going across this body of water and being delivered, you know, to caretakers to raise her in the same way that Moses was put into a basket of reeds and sent down the river. And then he was raised by the family that otherwise would have murdered his family and murdered him. So that that's like a religious connection that I saw. And there. she does lead an exodus of sorts later on. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it depends what the TV show yeah. does. Of her, you know, of presumably, well, what we get here, you know, she's leaving because Roger has been captured. And if you think about like, in terms of like, let my people go, her people are like children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I think so, we're talking about the same scene, just like trying to be vague about it. Yeah. Well, no, I just yeah. mean the information within this episode, yeah. just all by itself. We end with Roger banging on a cage mm. and screaming. I mean, he's a prisoner and she is leaving because partially because 
going to London is like the best chance of finding out what happened to him. Okay. Um, I had a question about that. Where mm-hmm. it seemed to mm-hmm. me to be visually implied that he was like trapped on the airship or something. I really like that idea. I don't think he is. It doesn't make sense. There's too many people on the airship. Like it would, it wouldn't work, but I just, as a consumer of a visual product, I felt like I needed some sort of external shot to show me like where he was because based on the way it was edited, it looked like he was on the cargo hold of the airship. I could absolutely see that if like the magisterium has their own secret compartment or whatever, you know, I, I did not interpret it that way. To me, it actually looked, I feel like if they'd given us any exterior shot, it would have been confusing because if they've got him on a boat, you might assume he's with the Egyptians. Right. If he's got him on a different airship, you would think he's on that airship. Right. They don't have cars, I don't think, so he's not in, like, a truck or something. So, I don't... I hear what you're saying. It just, I think, doing an exterior shot wouldn't have helped. Yeah. Unless they showed specifically a completely different boat or airship with that same, like, magisterium symbol on it. Mm -hmm. But then they might not want to give their hand away that it's the magisterium stealing kids or like a branch of the magisterium. So I don't know. And I think they want you to feel what he feels in that moment where like he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what he just knows he's trapped. Okay. And to, you know, and to definitely like 100% for sure let you know what's going on with Roger in that last moment while she's like rising into the air and she's free and she's got. This smile as she's like, oh, the Egyptian's cool. This this is all cool. And then Roger's like, ah, I'm trapped. You know, yeah. it's like that contrast is real, a real strong note to end on. But I can I can see what you're saying that it's confused. Like, where is he? But I don't think you're supposed to know. Yeah. Um. Oh, so speaking of scenes that I that are actually hated, um, I forgot to mention this earlier. There was one one part that I like genuinely thought should have just been edited out, and that's mm-hmm. uh, the exchange between Roger and Azriel, where oh, he's yeah. like, uh, "You're wrong about her. She's special." And then he says, "Everyone's special." I, right. What does that mean? I. I ugh. I did not like it. I thought it was hokey. I thought it didn't make sense thematically. I thought the acting was not good. I think they should have just like had a stare off. Yeah. <laughs> the the idea that Roger would even talk like that servant Roger would talk to Lord Azrael, yeah. let alone yell at him is like, and, like what? Even even this different beta Azrael, you know, I I don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're on that same page with me. Yeah. It's definitely and, and- weird. What the fuck? Everyone's special? Yeah, like, what? This, this is not a special what? episode of His Dark Materials. And Lord Asriel absolutely, like, based on everything that we've seen from Lord Asriel so far, like, he's super self-involved, only cares about himself, thinks he's way cooler and better and smarter than everyone else, like, would absolutely never in a million years say that everyone is special. I kind of want a a t-shirt with James McAvoy's face and it just says I'm special. Like everyone's special <laughs> underneath of it. I don't even know what they're trying to say there. No, like I, I, completely baffling. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. I don't I mean Lord help him. James what? McAvoy tried his best to pull it off. But yeah. 
did not work. <laughs> I guess I guess it's easy when you're just yelling because you're just acting yelling, but or just acting loud. But it I I don't I can't. <laughs> what were they go? I don't. I can't comprehend what they were even trying for there. Yeah. Anyway, the whole theme of the book is that Lyra's special. Not everyone's special. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I don't feel like that's. Yeah, that's not his motto. That's not his catchphrase. And like, even with the whole series, like that, it doesn't, there's no theme about everyone being special ever. You know, like, (laughs) in the books at least, like, there's not, that's not a thing that ever comes up. Everyone's special! Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, that was a moment that kicked me out every time. I think the second time I watched it, I laughed, (laughs) and that's probably not. Oh, I laughed every time. (laughs) (laughs) i just what i did want to talk about uh asriel since we're on the idea of him and like the vibes that i was picking up from uh his story like in terms of like religious history and stuff because i feel like the story wants us to feel some like galileo vibes in terms of how the magisterium is like hot for tracking him down and how he like he comes in and he's exhausted, but he's got to give this presentation so he can get enough money to leave right away and get back. Like he can only like be there for a day at the most before he's going to get caught. Mm -hmm. And so he's like a fugitive. And I feel like that is the way that the story of Galileo is told uh, in, you know, like in popular in the popular understanding of him, <clears throat> but is like not the reality of Galileo. I you, I think when we were reading the book, you said that you had to read his book, Anya. Uh, yeah. To become a doctor. N- no, th- that was actually an undergrad, not uh, for my PhD. Okay. This is a long time ago. I think that book's funny. I don't know if you remember any of it, or I assume they made you read the one that he got in trouble for, but he, <laughs> he like, Okay, so the thing that Galileo is famous for is like he comes out and says like the earth goes around the sun, which was not like a crazy thing to say. There had already been people saying that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was like, I agree with that. And then well, and didn't he had like better calculations or something to prove it? uh, Well, okay, so I think that's the popular understanding is that Galileo like conclusively kind of proves that the heliocentric view is like correct and publishes a book about it. And then the Catholic church comes after him and throws him in jail and then like tortures him and kills him. Like, I, I feel like if you, if you ask somebody on the street about Galileo and they knew any kind of answer, that would be the answer that you would get. Yeah. But in reality, uh, he didn't get in trouble for writing a book and the book that he did write had, was wrong and had bad science and, and did not prove anything. Um, cause he, uh, he was like, the reason the tides happen is because the earth is spinning and everybody was like, that's wrong. And he was like, no, I'm right. I'm really smart. Uh, and then the Pope asked him like, can you prove what you're saying? And he's like, I could, but you're not smart enough to understand. And the Pope was like, fucking excuse me. What? Uh, and that's what he got in trouble for was because he was like an arrogant ass and all of his other fellow scientists didn't like him. And he had like some rich 
backers who, you know, like the Medicis, if you've ever heard of them, who like were running most of Italy by that time, he was like their guy. Um, and the Pope couldn't go up against those guys. That That's how powerful they were. And so like he got in trouble for the book that he wrote. But the only thing that happened to him is that he got sent off to his house and they were like, you have to stay here for the rest of your life. And like people can come visit you and stuff, but you can't no more books. You can't write any more books because the book that he wrote was like he said, it's basically like a dialogue between two people. And on he was like, I won't say conclusively that the earth goes around the sun. I'll present it as a theory. And then I'll, I'll give the church's theory that the everything goes around the earth. And the church was like, cool. And so what he did is a dialogue between a person who is like a normal person. That's his voice. And then the other person, he named them simpleton. And he put the words of the Pope in that person's mouth. Uh, and then, and then that's like, he was like, the earth goes around the sun. And, and the Pope character was like, I don't think so. I think it's the other way around. Uh, and the Pope was like, fuck off with you. You're an asshole. Um, and so that's that's the truth about Galileo. Okay, but what about the, I mean, the thing that I know is the quote, and yet it moves. Is that not from the book? I guess that's just... Um, the earth, and yet the earth moves? Well, the it's yeah, it's referring to the earth, but the quote is just, and yet it moves. Like most of the scholars of his day agreed with the heliocentric theory. And mm-hmm. it wasn't even that controversial to the church. It's 100% that he was like a jerk and mouthed off to the Pope in front of everyone. I see. And so, and like, so what what's you're, the Pope going to do? You're basically saying that if he had said completely the same content, but just in a more low-key way, he wouldn't have gotten in trouble. Yeah, because they were totally like, hey, this is like they approved everything else. And then it was like the Pope was like, explain it to me because... I'm not sure I agree. And he was like, I actually, I can't. You're too dumb. Okay. So anyway, it, you know, like Azriel is like getting poisoned by uh, his peers. Uh, this is totally something that would have happened to Galileo if people could get away with it. And, um, and you know, like he's in trouble with the magisterium. I Although I guess Azriel seems way al- more legit. And Azriel's also an asshole. He is, yeah. But I feel like he's got the goods to back it up, like as opposed to Galileo, who was uh, he was brilliant. Like his major contribution to science is really like he uh, like parabolic curves and stuff on like like he figured out, like if you shoot a cannonball, this is the parabolic curve that it falls back to the earth. And then later Newton picks that up and like runs with it. But like the whole like going around the earth, that's like Kepler did way more for like heliocentrism than Galileo did. But Galileo gets big press, you know, because like the church uh, locked him up. But, you know, we named our podcast after the truth. So I felt like, (laughs) okay, this feels like Galileo. So maybe I would drop some truth on people that they don't know about, about Galileo. They did kind of cut out any uh, parallels between Ezreal and Satan. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get, like, you know what, actually, actually. No references to Milton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the writing I would have liked at the beginning. Mm. The His Dark Materials quote. I would have enjoyed that. Oh, that's a good point. Because even even if, if we'd gotten that writing and we almost immediately see Azrael on that clifftop, you know, looking at, at stuff, 
that with the, with the wind blowing around them and everything. I suspect that's probably where the first season's going to end, that particular cliff top. Ooh, yeah, I bet so. I don't have anything to add to Galileo. I know nothing about him, so I, I took a sharp turn. Well, that wraps up most of our discussion for today. If you'd like to avoid more spoilers or more specific spoilers than we've already given, then you should fast forward to the end now. Um, And if you like the show, take some time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at M-O-T pod. Uh, so you can live tweet Monday night on HBO with us uh, right along with the show. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Everyone special! Spoiler time. We see Will in the opening credits. Yeah, I think so. I like I that a lot. You. Yeah. It's definitely, it, the height difference, it's super not Roger. Oh, yeah. And I love that <laughs> so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you very look, good choice. if you look at that, like there's an upside down world over Lyra's, and there's yeah. like there's airplanes in that world, but there's blimps in her world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I was like, ah, oh, clever. Yes, I see. Yeah, I like that. All that stuff. That was a big part of the reason why I just love the opening credits. So they're already working everything in, and mm-hmm. so which just makes me even more convinced that that is definitely a knife in a spyglass. I still don't see it. I don't. I watched it like three times trying to see it. And I was like, it just looks like pieces of the alethiometer to me, to me. Mm-hmm. I will watch it again, again, obviously. Yeah. How do you um, picture the knife? I mean, we haven't gotten to that book at all, but I don't I can't remember if there's a description of it. I picture Sometimes it like it like, like a dagger, mm-hmm. just like sharp on both sides with a pointy tip. Okay. Because it's got to have a pointy tip if that's what's. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, cutting into other worlds and stuff. For some reason, I think of it as having like a kind of hooked tip and being one edged. It's definitely, no, it's definitely two edged because there's one edge that can cut through anything and there's one edge that can cut through worlds. Oh, yeah. I mean, the description has nothing to do with what happens in my head. Like so oh, often okay, gotcha. it'll be like this character has kinky black hair and I'm like a blonde. OK, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm actually like that too, but only really with people. With objects, I pay attention. With people, I definitely read the descriptions and then something happens and I just throw it out. Like not even on purpose. It just, I picture them however the heck I want. Yep. And just a quick, we've already kind of talked about the beginning, I guess, in in how they arrive at Jordan College, but I did like that Malcolm and Alice could be in that helicopter. That's good. There is literally nowhere... <laughs> On, on baby Lyra, where the alethiometer could be hiding, but whatever, it's fine. Like, that oh, alethiometer so. never belonged to Azrael. It arrived with her. Okay. When he, like, hands her off, it's, like, hidden in her, like, blankets and stuff. Malcolm shoves it in there. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know. Those names mean nothing to me at this point, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's fine. You have in um, here gyropter or what? I don't which know. Which is how you say that. gyropter, maybe? That's gyropter. what they call it in the book. They don't say okay. helicopter. So there are these machines. Because when we, I meant to say that in the show, actually, but I guess we're still in the show. I was like, oh, a helicopter. Like there's more advanced technology than what we were seeing in the book. Mm-hmm. But I guess those were a thing in the prequel. Yes. Would have been useful for going against the wind, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe they're too lightweight. I don't know. 
So this is like a slightly spoilery nitpick, but Lord Asriel says in the scene that the picture of the city in the Northern Lights was taken with a special emulsion that only, that like lets you see the dust. And in the books, right, Lyra can see the city with the naked eye. The, it's the same the thing though. Because in the, in the books, the same thing, Asriel says, I took this one oh, of okay. the Northern Lights with the special emulsion and you can see the city. Okay. She can see it with her naked eye because she like goes into her her like uh, her trance. trance. Okay. Yeah. So she's like communing with the dust. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or something. Or something. Or something. Okay. Well then that's not a complaint. Never mind. I <laughs> she's was just confused. Communing with the dark one. Yeah. Um the other thing that I really liked is the emphasis that they put on Grumman in the opening and or in the scene with, with the head and with um when Azrael is talking to the scholars, just so that it doesn't feel uh, like a throwaway name, you know. So when he's actually alive later on, it you, you you'll remember mm-hmm. him. I like that. I like that you couldn't see him. He was like, yeah, careful to be like, I got to make sure this ice don't melt. Yeah, I mean, but that also makes sense because you wouldn't want to be flying around with a rotting head. Yeah, no, yeah, that, no. that would not smell nice. And then I did also just want to mention that the. How how you were talking about the different relationship that Azrael and Lyra have in this. Mm-hmm. I also like it, and it makes me really upset that in the books they never see each other again after this one. Mm. And I hope I hope they figure out a way to change that to have them see each other in the last season. So I'll give you a prediction of what okay. I how I think this is gonna go. Or this is what yeah, this is my prediction. So I think what we're getting here is like I said, he cares about her but he can't be with her because that puts her in danger and that more and more he will like fight against his affection for her as we go through this season um and like close himself off and kind of like um you know the letter that we got from Kelly he's going to be per- performatively male uh and then he's going to like inhabit that performance and so the arc of that is that by the end he genuinely will not care about her. Like Mm. those feelings will be gone. I see the coldness with which he's able to like murder a child to achieve his ends will, will have been an arc for him as opposed to the book where he doesn't arc, but like the idea of him is rehabilitated by like Lyra's lies that she's telling herself. Right. Okay. I, you know, for the entire discussion of this chapter, or, or this episode, I forgot that he murders Roger at the end. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I, until we were just talking about it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this character is gonna have to murder Roger at the end." Like and I just be completely like, forgot. I, who's special now, bitch? <laughs> <And you're> like, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> no, I totally believe that James McAvoy's Azriel could do it though, because he was like pretty cool i mean there are moments of tenderness with lyra but he he definitely seems like very motivated like very single-minded and very just like willing to inflict his will on everyone around him Mm -hmm. and it's interesting the the arc that you think he's going to take because i would say over the three books it's it's not it obviously never gets to such a caring place but it's almost the opposite Mm -hmm. you know by the end of or by the middle or whatever of the Amber Spyglass, he wants to see Lyra again. You know, he wants to talk to her about all the things she's done. 
and he he learns to respect her for just her her bravery and how she just does what she feels needs to be done. Oh yeah, I mean, you can have a redemption story still, you know, yeah. to get him if he goes to that place where he can like do it. I because I, I don't think this character can do it, you know, what he's got to do at the end of the story. So you don't yeah. buy it, yeah. Not not as he he is now. Like I think that's a deliberate choice I that see. they want to like arc him yeah. into that. And then if they arc him back from that, let that's like a good redemption story, right? So yeah. That's yeah. cool. I still really I still I still hope like season three gives us a, a Lyra and Azrael reunion. Although and this is a big spoiler, uh, but like the way that they never see each other again in the books makes his ending even kind of even more tragic than it is so i don't know but again he murders a child so how tragic can he really be it, Coleman likes that tragedy man yeah jesus <laughs> sorry i just remembered the actual end of book three i'm like yes yes he does like that tragedy <laughs> fuck you got stuff about distance with demons or? i don't know if it's worth talking about it's pretty nitpicky i just like knowing what happens like with Lyra and Pan for getting York on their side. Mm-hmm. I just, I was paying attention to how far we see humans and demons get apart from each other. And it seemed like farther than I would have guessed. Um, but who knows? Maybe when they do that scene, it'll be even farther. Yeah, I, I think like as the books go on, that distance gets kind of like iffy anyways Mm. like there's one bit in book two where lyra asks pan to fly up and look in a window of a tower and he gets up pretty far before she's like okay and he comes back down so even the books i think are kind of wishy-washy on what that distance actually is um it's one of those things where it's like uh just like the distance that the demon can get from their human depends on exactly what the scene calls for Yes, exactly. Plot-driven magic. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I thought of one other thing that I wanted to say that I don't know if there's a good way to to like put this back in the main episode because it's not a spoiler at all. Well, we can just talk about it here. Okay. Whatever. Just I actually like really loved the this part of the scene at dinner when like Lyra and Mrs. Coulter are talking for the first time and Roger is like trying to get in there. Yeah, and it's just like not happening. Uh, <laughs> I thought, yeah, Lyra because she's Lyra, and Mrs. Col- well, I guess Mrs. Coulter because she's Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, I just thought that was that was like very well executed by all of them, and and like well directed, uh, well choreographed. Although again, I think puts a different personality on on show Roger because I don't think book Roger would ever talk to Lyra at fancy dinner. He would know better. Mm, yeah, that's fair. That's what I thought. I was like, I've been a waiter. Like, what you're doing is exactly the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And you would get in big trouble for that, especially with the master right there. It would be like, what are you doing? Just be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's you fair. know, in that same scene, um, I actually really liked that they prayed and, and all of that because we don't get that stuff in the book. And I just feel like there was more of the feeling of like religion just generally in this episode than you got in the book in terms of like Jordan College. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I kind of wanted to ask you a bit more about this. Like in the TV show version, it seems like 
Lyra is in a way responsible for Roger getting kidnapped. Like, at least the way I interpreted it, knowing what I know about Mrs. Coulter, I assume that, like, yes, basically, uh, Mrs. Coulter was trying to get Roger out of the way so she could just have Lyra on her own. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I think that kind of puts a slightly different spin on it. I don't, was curious what you thought. Like, a slightly different spin on, I, I guess what it would do if if Lyra realizes that is give her even more motivation to make sure she goes north with the Egyptians to save the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if she ever realizes that she caused that to happen. Yeah. But yeah, she, and yeah, Lyra is, seems way less eager to leave in general, which is also kind of like a different choice. Well, honestly, like if she finds out the information that, you know, that we find out in the next part, I would assume, then that's just a two plus two equation. Mm-hmm. That's like, who's in charge of what and who kidnapped my friend? Oh, goodbye. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so that like is actually a kind of deft piece of like writing in terms of like setting up a motivation for a character to make a choice later, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a stronger choice in a way. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Like, yeah. we'll see what who knows what happens in the next episode. Like you can't, it's tricky because I feel like the writers know that, you know, the book and so they can mess with you. They can, we're going to the right. Ah, we went to the left. Gotcha. (laughs) Another thing that I I get, I get why they did this. Uh, Like they probably at the time of writing and filming this, you know, they don't know if they're getting a season three or exactly how season three is going to play out, but they did take out between the, the conversation between the master and the librarian, any, reference to Lyra and death. Mm, yeah. And her effect on death. Uh and her I forget exactly how they worded in the book, but there's some good foreshadowing for book three there. Yeah, I I read that book by Pullman talking about like his thoughts on storycraft and all of this stuff. And he talks a lot about um his dark materials. And he is a pantser, which means like he doesn't plot things out ahead of time. Right. But he did say that he had he knew exactly what the ending was before he wrote anything. And so he was able to build up to it. The ending, like the way that... The ending ending. I'm trying not to spoil things for, no, no, yeah. for Anya here. Like the ending with what with what Lyra ends or the w- ending with yes. how the characters finish no, up? Not not the characters. With okay, like, the thing, with, the thing yeah. with death. Yeah. So like he had that in his mind. And then, you know, like a lot of other stuff along the way were discoveries for him. But like that specific kind of thing that you're talking about, being able to foreshadow book three and book one was because Mm -hmm. he knew where he was going. So, yeah. Interesting that they didn't do it. But it seems like they're going to be able to tell the whole story. So, yeah, I hope they do, because I'm book three is some of the stuff that I'm very, very excited to see how they do on screen, because book three gets fucking wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, like we meet a completely alien race mm-hmm. of, that have like exist on an Earth that has had a completely different evolution. I can't imagine meet- how they're gonna do that. <laughs> like that's when when they were like, "We're gonna make all three books," and I was like, "Really? Oh, all right. Let's see how your trunk technology works." <laughs> <laughs> and even I've seen, like, I've read the description of these characters in the book. I've uh, the, the Mulefa. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen a lot of fan artists drawing and I'm still like I do not understand their physiology. 
I do not understand how the wheels work. I do not. I, I need to see this visually to get it. And I'm super looking forward to that. Yeah, that's actually one of those things that when I think about it, I'm like, I really want Anya to talk about. Yeah, exactly. If somebody could have like four spines and stuff, <laughs> like what that would be. Yeah. And how they and how they do the trees and the seed pods. Yeah. And everything. Oh, I'm I'm really excited. La, la, la. I'm just not even listening. It's completely fine. <laughs> I'm honestly, I'm not even giving you anything about the plot of that okay. book. No, there's like, just like nothing about the things. plot. It's like, what if you had a diamond shaped spine? And I'm like, what? Yeah. So I'm I'm very, very, very interested to see how that plays out on screen. And also the the other thing that we were talking about. Yeah. The other world that they go to. Yeah. Hopefully there's a lot more money that season. Like if, you know, if the show does great, like I think they could do it. Yeah. I'm excited for season three. I mean, I'm excited for season two, too. There's there's some I'm excited for season two and season one because of like really specific character moments that I want to see. And I'm excited for season three just to see how they do all the crazy shit that happens. Yeah. And then still somehow bring that back to the, the big character moments that have to happen at the end. All right, that's that's my spoiler talk for episode Yay. one. So that was our spoiler talk for this week, and we'll see you all next week for episode two. And remember, everyone special.